you know, the story for Pabst is, you know, it went from basically, you know, a brand that sold so little that IRI couldn't tell you how little it sold all the way to uh, dominating domestic subpremiums in the United States, all off of the theory that people will share a story as long as it has three particular qualities. It is authentic, it is interesting, and it is relevant. Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Word-of-mouth marketing is estimated to account for 13% of global consumer spending each year and is responsible for influencing between 20 and 50% of all purchase decisions. Recent research states 86% of consumers trust word-of-mouth recommendations and online reviews. Today, I'm lucky enough to have with me one of the pioneers in word-of-mouth marketing, Ted Wright. Ted has been at the forefront of this industry since he helped reignite the Pabst Blue Ribbon brand in 2000. Over the last two decades, Ted's agency, Fizz, has become a global leader in word-of-mouth marketing, and Ted is recognized by the industry as one of the best speakers on the topic. If you're looking to learn more about the power of word-of-mouth marketing and how it differs from influencer marketing and ratings and reviews, then this episode is definitely for you. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn from one of the masters of the craft. Hi, Ted. Welcome to the show. It's a privilege to have you on today. I'm really excited about our conversation on word-of-mouth marketing. Thanks, Andy. I'm glad to be here. Um, you know, your reputation precedes you, so I'm honored to, uh, to be invited. Thank you. Well, Ted, you know what's really interesting to me is I just read uh, a new uh, article posted by Rashad Zbakawala, an industry futurist and friend of mine, uh, and he wrote... Marketing is getting people to advocate for you to other people. The most powerful form of marketing has always been word of mouth. Word of mouth has been, has become ex exponentially more powerful due to social media, new tools, and technologies. Instead of marketing to people, we should consider marketing through people. Now, I just happen to have with me the goat of word of mouth marketing, Ted. So how ironic is that? Uh, and I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about word of mouth marketing. Um, let's start by perhaps you taking me to that moment when you saw for the first time success in this space for a brand. You know, what was that like? And uh, was that perhaps the, the PBR brand? So it was. And um, so to go back to your bit about Rashad, so that showed up uh, in my LinkedIn feed like seven o'clock in the morning Sunday. And so I texted him immediately like, dude, you've got to tell me where you're doing these things. I'm like running around super excited. So uh, Rashad is, a, for those of you who don't know him, he's a super, super, super senior guy and uh, in marketing and he has always been wonderful 
about giving time to punks like me back when I was a punk and was just like, I got an idea. And, you know, he would give me an hour and we would talk and he's, he's been special to lots of people for a long time. So I really did enjoy that. And it also shows for me getting to your point, Andy, it also shows to me like in the last 25 years where we really come for. So as you pointed out the first time I ever went live with this idea of uh, word of mouth marketing was with the Paps Ribbon brand. Uh, and it was really great. A guy named Brian Kovalchek was a uh, CEO of the Pabst Brewing Company, and he owned 40-some-odd beer brands, and Pabst was their least-selling or close to their least-selling It definitely not a profitable brand for them. And so I went down to make a pitch, and I didn't even know what brand I was talking about, but I was like, I got this idea. And the idea was that broadcast is going to decline in its ability to sell more stuff and is going to be replaced by two people who already know each other talking about stuff that they love, one talking to another. And I didn't have, that was back when there was no date on this. There's no third party date on this. No one had really done this in a professional way for about 70 years. So I had all these historical examples and I had all these other things. And at the end of it, Brian looks at me and he says, all right, so look, so I get to a meeting about uh, old Milwaukee and the TV campaign we're going to put together. So I got to go now. I have no idea if you're an idiot or a genius. So I'm going to give you this many markets and this many months for this amount of money. You can take it or leave it. And then we'll talk uh, at the end of that many months. And I took the money and flew out to Atlanta and where my wife was living at the time. And, and we were both living there. And I said, hey, we're on the way. Uh, and we were. And so PBR was our very first thing we did. And there was another guy, a great internal partner there, a guy named Neil Stewart, who has gone on to do great things in beverage alcohol and is now uh, doing awesome things back in his hometown of uh, St. Louis, Missouri. So and it was uh, basically Neil and I figuring this out. And, uh, the you know, the story for Pabst is, you know, it went from basically, you know, a brand that sold so little that IRI couldn't tell you how little it sold all the way to... Uh, dominating domestic sub-premiums in the United States, all off of the theory that people will share a story as long as it has three particular qualities. It is authentic, it is interesting, and it is relevant. Or if any of your listeners out there like using acronyms, they can just say, hey, did my story have an air? So is it authentic, is it interesting and relevant? So Neil and I figured this out with some good research and just some gut, because Nobody really cared about this brand at the time, the Pabst Brewing Company, and uh, turns out we were right, and it was great. So how did you do it? Tell me the secret, if you can, around how you got to the authenticity and uh, authentic and relevance and, and make that happen for PBR. What was the secret? All right, so the secret for Pabst, the, little, the, the interesting thing we got from there. So remember, so this is 2001, right? So we're taking this thing over. So in 1996, a woman had written a book. Her name is Naomi Klein, and she had written a book called No Logo. And she basically was making the, the, the argument that people were less interested in branded goods and more interested in the actual empirical quality. And so what she was doing was she was basically at the very end of yuppieism. So yuppieism as a political movement really started in the very late 70s as kind of a counter-cyclical movement to the era of disco 
and the sort of the malaise of the 70s. Jimmy Carter's famously referred to the American economy as stuck in a malaise. And so people were just kind of hung over from all these other things. And yuppieism was showing up. And yuppieism was basically saying, hey, we got to get rid of this whole Woodstock. Everything's going to happen. And we got to get serious. And we got to be, we are young and we want to live in cities. So why of yuppie for young, urban, we live in cities. And we're going to be professionals. So we're going to be young urban professionals. And instead of just being yups, we're going to be yuppies. So in 1979-1981-1982,this is a big deal,this is a revolution,and what you saw was you saw a lot of brands that were old-school about either being in England or being in the upper eastern part of the United States, Brooks Brothers, J-Press, Mount Blanc,Cross,Luggage,all the rest of these
very specifically wore really dorky, nerdy beer distributor collared polo shirts with the Pabst logo on them. So we did not look like the guys who were all wearing tattoos and bones in their nose, but we would go to these uh, bike messenger festivals and they would come and they would ask us, eventually they would say, okay, what are you two narcs doing here? And, but we were obviously too young to be narcs. So we probably weren't, you know, drug cops. So then they're like, so what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, we work for the Pabst Brewing Company. And we told them what we were doing. It's like, we think what you're doing is cool. We know a little bit about it. We just thought we'd come checking up. That's kind of our job. And so the other thing that you find out is in marketing, there's a rule uh, called reciprocation. So if you show that you love somebody, you as a brand express love to a group, and that group doesn't feel a lot of love anyway, they'll become curious about you and wonder why it is you're giving us love. And they'll come and check you out. So in 2001, I always joke, the only people who really had a lot of tattoos were people who had been in prison, uh, people who were in biker gangs, and members of the Yakuza, which is a Japanese dent. Really, there's not a whole lot of Yakuza in the United States, or that there was. But we would go to these tattoo shows where these tattoo artists were doing great stuff and were basically taking Sailor Jerry and bringing it in into today's world. And we'd ask them questions. They'd be like, that's so cool. Like, my parents hate that I'm doing this. Everyone thinks it's weird, but you don't. Wait, who do you work with again? And we tell them, and they try the butt beer. And so we did that with bike messengers and people who were taking and customizing bicycles. And we did that with tattoo artists. And we did that with people. Um, turns out that Neil Stewart loves uh, gambling uh, and sports gambling. And somebody on ESPN heard about that. And so they called him one day at his office and just... He picked up the phone and he answered their calls like, ESPN radio calling, can you get on? And so we're like, okay, let's talk about, let's talk about sports betting. Let's talk about anything that people are doing because it's very real. And they told two friends and so on and so on. And the promise we made about the beer is, eh, for a buck, it's pretty good. Right? That was basically the promise we made. And in fact, if you drink BDR, especially if it's cold, uh, for a buck, it is pretty good. And more people told people, and the story that they told matched the experience that they had. And in people who live in North America, the story you tell them matches the experience that you have. They'll come together and they'll buy your stuff. Wow, that's a great story. And it sounds like uh, advocacy really has to live in the cultural context. And it sounds like you guys did a lot of ethnography and deep dive into the, the story of what's happening in culture real time and, and a depth of understanding, which I don't think most people would look at word of mouth marketing and, and connect those two components um, of how important it is to, to develop that advocacy in the spirit and in the context of the storyline of culture. So thank you for noticing that, Andy. Um, culture is critically important for us in that particular brand. What we needed to do is we needed to find something to tie it to. We need to find a story that was authentic, that was interesting, and it was relevant. We've worked with other brands before where that is, that is internal into what makes them awesome. Uh, I'm just going to brag on uh, our friends out at Chipotle. So Chipotle is amazingly great food. Like they only, in any restaurant, they only have 52 ingredients, including salt and pepper. They make the food that you buy at a Chipotle, they make 90% of it there. 
So as when we first joined them and you know we're helping them, nobody really talked about that. Nobody really knew that. And we're like, this is amazing. I mean, all of the home cooks, the home chefs who work here at the office were like, so the only difference between you making chicken tacos and me making chicken tacos with guacamole is that you just have 40 chickens on a grill and I only have two. They're like, yeah, basically. I mean, they're chopping this stuff. Average Chipotle opens up at like seven o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, whenever. They don't take their first customers till 11. All of that time is they're preparing the food. So not a part of the cultural context in there, just something that was truly authentic about them. And then the next question you have to ask yourself is, okay, who is that really interesting to? It's interesting marginally to like everybody, but who really is going to care about that? And how is that really relevant to things that they're trying to accomplish? So with Pabst or JetBlue or, or Chipotle or any of these other things we've worked with, that's really the key. And that's, I think the understanding that everybody, hopefully, who's listening to this takes away is it's not a thing you have to tie this to. It's like what really is authentic about what you're doing, what is really interesting about it, and that interesting thing, who is it relevant to? I love that. I love that. That's super clear. I want to challenge you a little bit because a lot of the brands you're talking about seem to be easy to love, easy to advocate for. Uh, have you ever taken on a brand that might be, and this is a bit of a softball, so because I've looked at your website, like almost an impossible brief, uh, like a vacuum sweeper, uh, a Bissell, like it, when that brief came in, how in the world did you create advocacy around something that would seem so benign as perhaps that? All right. So let's talk about, let's talk about in, in marketing, everyone tells you, oh, Ted, you know, you, you, the sexy things are easy. Look. I just had somebody uh, call me and they bought an old school horror magazine that's super famous. Like, if you love horror films, that is super sexy to you. I personally, all that stuff makes me oogie and make me throw up when I was a kid. I don't do horror movies. Halloween, all the rest of stuff. I cannot do that for very long at all, right? Not sexy. Sexy to other people. So with Bissell, what we said was... That's the name of the company again. CEO was very nice. He had seen me speak at something and he's like, I got this sweeper, which is a very, at the time, was a very small part of their business uh, on a revenue wise, but a very large part of their business history and also a very large part of their management time. And so they had the board, at the board level, they'd had conversations like, you either need to sell a lot more of these or me to exit the business. And Mark Bissell still runs that. It's a family-owned business. And so, you know, there was some thought like, it's going to be very hard to go to Thanksgiving consistently if I get rid of the thing, you know, that, you know, we need to make this work. Like, how are we going to make this work? So what we did was we said, okay, so what is it that actually does? Like, what is awesome about this? So it turns out it is awesome for a couple of different things. Uh, one of them is it's great for pet hair. And we're like, okay, check. So great for pet hair. Now, look, for everybody who's listening to this, it's not like we just said, hey, pet hair and Legos. We took a hundred things that it was good at doing and we put them on a board. And then that's what I want everybody who's listening to do this. If you decide you think your word of mouth market is interesting, here's how you do it. You take the thing that you're talking about that you want to sell more stuff of to more people. 
and you take absolutely every aspect of that brand and put it on a big piece of paper or a whiteboard. And then you're going to have between 50 and 150 different aspects. Like I'm sitting here looking at Andy. He has a very dashing beard, right? He's also, he is the king. He is the OG guy in shopper marketing. He's all of these other, he lives in Northwest Arkansas. There's all these little bits and pieces. So we would take everything about Andy that we knew, and then we would say, okay, who are we trying to get Andy to be more interested and interesting to, right? And if you're trying to move to Northwest Arkansas, then we talk about Northwest Arkansas. And if you're talking about shopper marketing, we talk about shopper marketing. And so for what we do is we take a 10-point valuation, authentic, interesting, and relevant. And we assign a 1 to 10 for each of those 150 things for each one of the three different pieces, authentic, interesting, and relevant. So you're going to get some stuff that's going to score a 6, and other times, you know, you're going to give them a score of 30. Your top eight things, that's what we practice with. So that's what we did with Bissell. So first of all, pet hair. Secondly... It is the most, and we, this was an accidental discovery on our part. Uh, I, my son was prime Lego time, and I was messing around with these things at the house, and it turns out that they can suck up a Lego piece like nobody's business, but it also doesn't destroy it. So for any of the Lego parents that are out there, you know, if you suck up a Darth Vader minifig and destroy his red lightsaber, there's a lot of tears and there's a lot of replacement that's got to go on. So this thing will gently move it, but it also picks up all the little pieces that you don't step on in the middle of the night. Other piece that we found about this was it was uh, very portable. So the other group of people we went to is people. We like, okay, it's very portable. Who cares about being very portable? Ah, people live on boats and people who live in RVs. And so there's a ton of people that... I'm going to retire, you know, Martha, get the RV. We're going to go buy one and we're going to travel and see the country. And there's a lot of people that do that, like a lot, a lot. Like six, 700,000 people every year are picking this up as a hobby. So we're like, okay, well, that's half a percent of America times plus all the people who love dogs. Okay, so that's like 9% of America that are pet parents plus all the Lego parents out there. So let's throw together this group. So then the next question you come to yourself is, now that you figure out what stories we're going to tell, the next question is, where do your people go hang out? Where do they co-locate, to use the very fancy HBR term, of where does everyone get together? Where do they co-locate? And how do they share their information? So a co-location idea for everybody here is... Uh, you know, a church or a synagogue or a mosque. You know, every Saturday or Sunday, these people are going to be at that place. Like, come, you know, come hell or high water, to use the phrase, that's where they're going to be. So we found that out for Lego parents, for people who have dogs and pet hairs around in their, that environment, and RVs, and we went out to those places, and we just shared the story. And people went, uh that solves a problem for me. That's so great. I mean, I mean, y'all just, I cannot even tell you how many people, RV people that are out there, but my most famous one ever, this man, this woman retired. He had, she, they both worked as a auto manufacturing factory and an auto manufacturing line for like 30 years each. And they had four pet cockatoos 
and they put four pet cockatoos and the two of them into an RV and they were driving around the country for like five years. And so you can imagine with a couple of birds, there's all kinds of mess and feathers and all the rest of the stuff. I'm positive that Bissell has sold over 10,000 sweepers just from this woman telling everybody who also travels with birds, oh my God. When we started this, as you brought it up, Andy, we would we were not thinking cockatoos and an RV. That's what's led us to crazy success. But and it totally worked, right? They were happy. Sales increased dramatically. So for everyone who's listening here, it is not is your product or service sexy? Is it who is your product or service sexy to? Who is it important to? Who is going to care? That's the key. Every, look, we live in America, right? There's 320 million of us. There's people out there who love the TV show so much that they name their children Walker and Texas Ranger. So it is not that they, they're not fans of whatever it is you're doing. The question is, how can you get to them and how can you share your story in such a way that they immediately get what's interesting and relevant to that and you give them an easy path to purchase? You know, Ted, you're describing a process that is much more forensic and excavating and and digging through to get to real truths that is a bit different than perhaps how some marketing uh, brands try to market through influencer marketing as we know it today, where, you know, it's finding a person on TikTok and giving them some products and hopefully lightning will strike in a bottle and, uh, you know, it'll blow up for them at some point. And there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. It's not a good or bad approach. But, but as you describe it, the work of creating advocacy feels different to me as a marketer than the work of just, you know, building an influencer program. Are they different? Same. I mean, how do you see it? Advocates have three particular personality traits that drive them. They like to try new things because they're new. They love to share stories. And they're intrinsically motivated. So influencers are different. Influencers are people that professionally have made a decision to go out and build an audience and then go to brands and say, I have this relationship with this audience. If you pay me, I'll talk about your thing. Now, there is some integrity, quote unquote, um, just from the influencer marketing. They talk about integrity brands like, I would never talk about something that I don't love. So just so everybody who's listening knows this, that is actually fundamentally not true. You could actually pay somebody enough money where they would talk and say and do anything that has been well proved, uh, both in theory and in reality. So where I'm excited about advocacy is the other great thing about advocates versus influencers is you rent an influencer, you earn an advocate. So once you have earned your advocate, until you break covenant with it, until you decide to make a bad product, or or you're you're you don't use strawberry guava anymore, you do some other flavor. It's like I only like strawberry guava, so I'm leaving Snapple or whatever it is that you do. They will stay with you forever until you break the covenant, and the covenant you have made with them is. We as a brand are going to do this, and this is why we're going to do it. You have fallen in love with the brand for whatever reason, but it's based on what they do and how they do it always. And so you're going to stay until that story changes. 
And you see that, right? You see that, you saw that in the American car. I mean, the reason that the American car industry changed is and and really died and was supplanted or changed radically and got a lot smaller and was supplanted by other people is that car manufacturers had made a deal with people say this is what the car is this is what we will do it delivered on all those promises and then when the world changed and they needed a different promise american car companies were like ah we made money for 50 years making sure this promise is true we're going to keep doing that and nobody cared about that promise anymore. It had become irrelevant. So authentic, interesting, and relevant, that air thing, keep coming back to that always. You know, Ted, one of the reasons some marketers might prefer focusing on uh, influencers, although it's not an either or thing, is that uh, marketers love measurement, right? Money follows metrics. Uh, and the ability to get attribution for that investment with uh, with influencers is more easily tracked, I would suppose, than the uh, measuring the outcomes of an advocacy program. So, what do you? How do you think about measurement and uh, for brands in terms of measuring the impact of advocacy? Uh, how granular can it get? Um, and what are your thoughts? So, I'm going to get really dark and negative for a second. I'm just going to quote two falcoids that are flown out from the A and A. Um, somewhere between half and 80% of all of those metrics that you get from influencers are fake. Like they're false. Not like, oh, I misunderstood something. Like, no, they have a, a, a server named Andy and a server named Ted and they're blinking back and forth and they're counting that and telling the brands that there are these conversations. The world marketing association, which I was unfamiliar with, but it's everyone that's outside the United States, that's what they belong to, says that for criminal organizations, digital attribution fraud is their number two moneymaker. It may, in, by 2030, it may pass illegal drugs. So if you think of all of the narcos cartel stuff that you've seen and the money that you that we've heard piles and stacks and you, we got to have a warehouse for this. All those criminal organizations make almost as much, if not more money, doing digital fraud than they do selling drugs. Yeah, no, no question. It's a big problem. And it's a right, misleading. It's a big problem. Yeah, 100%. So for, so for what I say to people is like, look, and this is, now I'm speaking, speaking particularly to our friends in the startup world. You've raised $8 million, $10 million, and Aunt Sadie is definitely going to need her $50,000 back you know, eventually. You're going to trust criminal organizations and their fake digital stuff that everybody says is out there. That's who you're going to trust? Or let's take another thing, you're not a stuff, you're working for a brand. Like I'm going to be the brand manager for, I'm just going to pick something, Orville Redenbacher. You know, I mean, you pick anything. You're going to trust your career because you told somebody in your organization, give me this money, I'm going to do this with that money and sales are increased. And you've got all these digital metrics that are going and sales don't increase. You know, they're looking at you, brothers and sisters. They're not looking at themselves. They're like, you said you made us a promise, an implicit agreement that we're going to go do this thing as opposed to all the other things we could do and we're going to get more sales. And you don't. So, there's nothing wrong with digital. We have clients all around the world. They use digital all the time. 
we are supportive of that. We're happy for that. It's not negative. You do need to watch the facts. And the facts are that the attribution for digital is super sus. It's super sus. And so you have to be careful. Now let's talk about attribution for word of mouth. Let's go. Now let's get less, more bright and shiny and unicorns and rainbows. And let's talk about what's, what works. Everybody who's listening to this has a media marketing mix that you use. So you're like, I got billboards and I got FSI and I got this and I got that. And I got the other thing. And I figured out how I know how effective billboards are, how effective my Super Bowl commercial is and how effective this. And once I know that, I'm going to rationalize and I'm going to spend my budget in the way that I'm going to get the most out. Word of mouth fits right in there. Just whatever your media marketing mix, I just happen to know that it fits because I got nine people who work at Fizz and that's all they do. And there's a great guy who's way smarter on the measurement side than I am. His name is Ed Teller, K-E-L-L-E-R. Ed started doing the measurement side of word of mouth about 18 months after I started doing the actual doing the word of mouth, like throwing campaigns. Super good, super smart. He is the dude. Uh, go look at all his stuff on the technical aspects of how to measure all of this. Uh, when anyone says it's you can't measure word of mouth, what they mean is it's harder to measure word of mouth than is digital. Like if you camp on top of an API, you can watch the little things flow in the digital river. Yeah. Well, and I've always felt like you know a, a more precise measure isn't a more perfect measure. Uh, and the idea that you can get some precision through a digital lens doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're measuring the things that matter most, right? And in your case, it's going to be more econometrics, market mix modeling, a longer view. This isn't about short-term performance. This is about how you build a brand over time. Yes. And since you mentioned performance, uh, let me just say, uh, so I'm kind of famous now, uh, at least with the office. I always say performance marketing is neither discuss. Um, and that's a little hardcore because there's nothing wrong with doing that. But at the end of the day, when you run something all the way out to the nth degree, um, you run into the Andy Murray slash Einstein quote, which is like, sometimes you measure things well, but they don't make as much difference as measure things that are much harder to measure. And that's what you should do. And you were talking about attribution and Einstein was talking about dark matter, but it's both the same. It's, it's hard to measure those things, but those are the things that move markets. And we know that there's no CEO, there's no CMO that anybody knows who doesn't say word of mouth is even by number one, number two, or number three driver period for all of my sectors. I mean, you're up in Arkansas. I would say that the Walton family built Walmart on having a story it was about low price and making sure that they lived up to that story every day and one person told another and they told two friends and so on and so on and every time they opened up a store particularly in the early days when sam was doing this he was outside of markets where there wasn't as much competition and he rolled in and said y'all there's no reason why we can't have low prices here we are we're walmart i put my name on it i'm sam walton come shop here yeah, for years, for years, Sam resisted any kind of marketing. He felt the prices and customers did the talking uh, because of absolutely because of word of mouth and what that meant. So you're spot on uh, from that standpoint.
So Ted, ratings and reviews. I, I'm understanding from the surveys I've seen that it's like number two or three decision-making factor for people considering brands. How do you put word of mouth alongside ratings and reviews? So ratings and reviews are in fact some people's enjoyment and how they spread their word of mouth, right? They're just writing. So if you're interested in word of mouth, the trick you have to have in your mind is to not worry about the tool and worry about the outcome. So if you have a bunch of people that are like, oh my gosh, I love this so much, I'm going to go make a TikTok video. Fantastic. Celebrate their TikTokness. They're going to go on LinkedIn. They're going to tell all their friends. They're going to go write reviews on Amazon. You want that. And for people who talk about, oh, there's lots of fake reviews and whatever, right? So let's just be super clear. The human brain is the best decision-making engine on planet Earth. Even with all the chat bots and everything else, and they're, they're looking more and more like people, but they don't look like fake people. They look like real people. And they're getting more and more real. I, I posit that it takes somebody about half a second to figure out that a review is fake. Like if you really know the thing, it's not hard to tell which ones are fake. So you only care about the fake reviews being a problem if you're just counting the number of reviews or what the stars are. So I could tell you for a fact that there's nobody here in North America who thinks, you know, a three stars is basically it's trash. Because even though Amazon has a one through five star system, nobody really believes the ones and people only believe about half of the fives. And so when the average on Amazon is like 4.3, then, you know, that's a C. And so people are looking for the B's and the A's. And so they're reading the nuances. And it depends also for those people out there who really care a lot about reviews. You want people to really write, it's a three-part review. You want people, the best reviews out there are people that start off like, hey, this is me. This is who I am in my life right now. Like I'm 42 and I have a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. Okay, great. And we went to this hotel in Hawaii and had a great time. And here's what we did. So if you're 23 or you're 30 and you're getting married, you stop reading. We said 42 and got two kids. Like, oop, don't care anything more about how they love that place because nothing they said is relevant to the experience that I wish to have. So first part, say who you are. Second part, say what you liked about it. And the third part that makes it really authentic to people is what's the hack? Like, oh, and when you're at this hotel, make sure you go and see James, the bartender, because he makes the best Mai Tai on Mount. And you're like, okay, it seems like they really went there. And so that little nugget gives an aura of authenticity around everything else that you wrote. Yeah, that's great advice. That's great advice to go listen and learn. It's also, I think, sometimes helpful to look at the one reviews for if it's your brand and try to understand what is going on uh, that you're not getting the word about. Because people will tell you if they're advocates, they'll also tell you when they're not happy with something. They will. So here's a line that we like to use. No one complains about something that they don't love. That's right. Love that. They just don't. So take those complaints very seriously. Uh, Mercedes-Benz roadside assistance. Um, since you stranded my wife for three hours on Friday, uh, we will be having a chat. And it's really because she loves her car. 
and we don't want to get rid of it, but you you can you can't leave her hanging for three hours, you know, on on a major interstate. You just can't do that. So you you will be hearing from me with a couple of words of advice. Oh my word. I can't wait to see that one. Please send me a copy of that review, will you? So Ted, uh, one of the key audiences of this program are students at the University of Arkansas, especially in marketing. And I'd love to get your perspective on what you might suggest to students who are gonna be entering the workforce in a marketing space on how they may learn more about word of mouth marketing. Because as you know, there's no discipline in a, in a typical university on word of mouth marketing on its own. Uh, but it's such an important element to understand. And so any thoughts or suggestions on how they may upskill themselves uh, prior to entering the workforce? So sure. And uh, so let me start by saying, whoop pig, sweet. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, you just did, you just got a lot of likes out of that one, I'm sure. <laughs> First off, you know, if I, if I had my Razorback hat, I would wear it. Um, so, all right. So here's where you got to. If you want to find out about word of mouth, um, there are there are a lot of free. There's a lot of free stuff out there. Seth Godin wrote a wonderful book called Purple Cow, and Seth basically makes the case about what is remarkable and have that. Um, there is another book we talked earlier about um, a guy named Ed Keller. He wrote a book called The Influentials, and that takes you through the math side of this. Um, there's a lot of free access to information on uh, the Association of National Advertisers, also known as the ANA. That is different from the AMA, everybody. So ANA, um, they have some stuff. And finally, uh, everything that we know at Fizz, uh, we put on our website and it's all for free. So if you're just interested in word of mouth, there's case studies all over the place. And if you basically type in word of mouth marketing, and you'll find a lot of stuff. If you want to further dare, you also put Fizz in there. You'll find five or six case studies. You'll find 10 or 12 third-party articles that have been written, all great New York Times, Wall Street Journal kind of stuff, um, just about word of mouth and how to get it done. There's also a lot of speeches. So I give some speeches. Um, there's another guy named Jay Bear who gives a lot of speeches on this. Our speeches are recorded, and then people put them out there. So I would think if I was a student, if I put it in three or four hours, I could learn enough of the basics to know if this was going to work for something I was interested in, or I just wanted to keep it in my bag of tricks when I joined, uh, you know, John Tyson over at, at Tyson Chicken or whatever it is that I'm going to do after you were Arkansas. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Okay, well, that's super helpful, and I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for spending time with me today to give me and our audience a much deeper appreciation for not only the importance of advocacy and how brands can be intentional building that, but you've also then kind of outlined a bit of the science and the practice behind it, which is much deeper than I ever imagined. So uh, deeply appreciative for your time today. Uh, I'd like to know, for those that want to know more about what you're doing, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? So the easiest way to find me is getting that little Google thing. If you just write Ted Wright and Fizz in your search bar, you'll find me everywhere I am. Uh, if you want to follow me on LinkedIn, I'm there a lot. Uh, and then our company is called Fizz, F-I-Z-Z, -Z, and we're at fizzcore.com, F-I-Z-Z-C-O-R-P.com. 
Uh, and I'm glad for anybody to uh, stop by and see what we're working on. It's We always try to have fun down here. Well, you know what? It's interesting. Speaking of word of mouth, I mean, I, I found you through word of mouth of a friend of mine, uh, Sean Womack, a friend of yours who uh, put me in touch with. He's got to meet this guy and what they're doing at Fizz. And I did some research and found the the stories fascinating. And I was just so appreciative to have you come on because it's such a timely topic. I mean, what's happening with TikTok, influencers, uh, ratings and reviews, you cover the gamut of that space and have been for many, many years. So again, thank you for joining us. And uh, I hope to see you soon. And it was great to be here. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you again uh, in the near future. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Wilton College original production.